you will please turn with me this morning to our scripture in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Once you've found the scripture, if you will please rise for the reading of the word this morning. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And it reads, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. But here's the key. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The word of God to the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. My friends, it's often said uh, among preachers that you preach from the overflow of what you've been studying, you know, what you've been reading through that week. And I'd just like to say, you all have no idea how close you were to getting a sermon out of Leviticus today. <laughs> it's true. I've been thinking through Torah. Uh, preparing for the new semester, looking at uh, just some of the concepts in Torah, some of the things that I'm going to uh, integrate in the class as I start teaching. And one of the interesting things I find about Torah, you know, oftentimes in Christianity we, we translate this word Torah as law. Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we often translate it as law. But the truth is that law doesn't really capture what these books are all about. I mean, yes, law is a part of that. We have the Ten Commandments, for example. We all know those. But there's so much more in Torah. You see, the word Torah in Hebrew actually doesn't translate to law. That, that's kind of a unique thing we do in Christianity, uh, misreading Judaism a bit. The word Torah actually means instruction. And instruction can mean law like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments provide some very important instruction for us. Amen? Amen? Yes. But all throughout Torah, there are also a lot of stories, narratives. And these stories also provide instruction to us, don't they? These stories also teach us. And so Torah really is, is the instruction of God, not just the law. Which means all these stories in the book of Genesis these are Torah as well, instructions. And, and as I came and was reading this passage about Abram, it, it, it kind of dawned on me how much did all of these stories interconnect with one another to teach a larger overarching message. We, we all know these stories in the beginning of Genesis, right? We get the beautiful story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And then, of course, we get Genesis 3, right? The story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We all remember this story, correct? Yeah, we sometimes refer to it as the fall. This moment where Adam, and you, you know the name Adam means humanity, right? And, and Eve, and the name Eve means life. And so you have, have one person, humanity, one person, life, living in this, in this beautiful paradise, this beautiful world that God had created. 
We all know God created the world good, amen? Yes. But then something goes wrong, doesn't it? There, there's a disobedience in there that seems to disrupt everything. And, you know, there, there's a lot of messages that could be preached about what goes wrong in Genesis 3. But, but did you catch the temptation that the serpent offers in that story? When the serpent is tempting Eve, the serpent says, you will be like God. Y'all know there's a difference between being godly and godlike. Amen? Because you see, that, that's, one of the first, that's the first temptation that we see. It's not just, not just disobedience to God. There is disobedience. But there is this very real temptation to this, and you will be like God. And you see, there, there is a very real difference between being godly, reflecting the ways of God in this world, reflecting the values of God in this world, reflecting our God in such a way so that people praise our God. There is a difference between being godly and trying to be godlike, wanting people to lift us up, wanting us to stand in the place of God, to act in the place of God. The Bible encourages us to be godly. The Bible encourages us to reflect the goodness of God in this world. Yes, we are called to be godly. But the Bible repeatedly warns us about being godlike. And you see, that's the thing. It's from this very first story, it seems like that temptation to want to be like God is going to echo throughout every story that follows. No matter where we are or when we live, there is this tendency that lives within us, doesn't it? This tendency, sometimes in, in Christian theology, we call this original sin. There's this yearning where I want me to be exalted. This yearning where I want me to be lifted up. A continual temptation where I want my name to be praised. Doesn't matter where we are, or what time period we're living in, yeah. that seems to show up time and time again just in our nature and humanity. You know, I, I, I'm always wondering, how, how does my Instagram filters make me look to all of my friends? Do they make me look good enough, right? I'm always concerned about my image and how other people are going to look at me. So concerned about whether or not they're lifting me up in their minds. How many likes am I going to get on social media? How many shares? See, my friends, this story is it's not just a story about the temptation of our, our primeval ancestors. It's a story that resonates with all of us today, doesn't it? From Pharaoh in the book of Exodus to Belshazzar in the book of Daniel, we, humanity, have been tempted to confuse being godly with being God-like. The first great temptation, and of course we remember in this story in Genesis 3, there's, there's a judgment that comes, right? There, there's a judgment. And one of the interesting things about this judgment, when you look at the text, is it's not just God saying, okay, you did something wrong, you need a punishment. The, the punishment actually serves a purpose. To stop Adam and Eve from continuing down that path of trying to be God-like. Y'all yeah. notice how that story ends, right? It ends with God saying, they can no longer stay in the garden or they'll do it again, right? They'll eat in this other tree trying to be God-like. And so God does what? 
sends them out of the garden in order to stop them from continuing on this path. And I find it really interesting in this story that at the very end, God doesn't send them away empty-handed. You know, in, in, in the story of Genesis 3, God covers Adam and Eve. Y'all notice that when they disobeyed God, they, they felt a sense of shame. They realized shame. And so God covers them with clothes at the end of the story. And so we, we get this temptation to confuse being godly with being godlike. There is a judgment, but the judgment serves a purpose. Purpose is to stop them from doing it more. To stop them from going down that, that path of destruction. But then there's a covering. There, there's some kind of grace God extends. A protection, we could say. He covers them at the end. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? That's a story that resonates with all of us into the present world, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, so we turn the page. And we find ourselves in Genesis 4 now. With a new generation. We all know that generations come and generations go. But the heart of humanity remains rather consistent, doesn't it? And so we find ourselves now, not with the first parents, but with the first children in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And we all remember this story, right? Cain becomes jealous of his brother, rises up, and kills him, the first murder, wiping out one-fourth of the world's population. Pretty bad. But you know, when I think about this story, though, it, it is a story about murder, but once again, I think this story resonates a little deeper. Because, you know, the name Cain means weapon. And the name Abel means fleeting breath. It's like a mist, <coughs> fragile, here today and gone tomorrow. And what happens when you have a story with weapons that live side by side with the fragility of human life? Oh, that's going to keep speaking today, isn't it? Makes me wonder how, uh, why it is that sometimes governments, whenever there are regions that are destabilizing, the answer is to send more weapons there. But we're not going to get into that right now. But here's the thing. Cain takes a life, right? Who's the giver of life? We just learned this in the book of Genesis. God's the giver of life, right? Who is it that gives that breath of life into Abel? God. So Cain takes something that God gave. Cain reaches into a world to try and claim power over something that only God should have authority over. Our life. Death. So wait. Was Cain... Trying to be godlike? <coughs> well, this, the, the story continues, right? There's a judgment, right? And catch, catch this judgment here in Genesis 4. God tells Cain that he's going to be a wanderer. But listen to what Cain says. Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. I can't stand this. He says, Today you're driving me away from the land. Wait, he's being sent out again. Didn't we just get that in the previous story? Hang on. I'm starting to think these stories are all connected here. And then he says, whoever finds me will kill me. Now that, that raises the interesting question, who else is around that he's talking about? And one of the things I love about the Bible, the Bible's not trying to give us an objective history. The Bible's trying to teach us a theological message about this God, right? And here's the thing, so the Bible doesn't give us all the details, the Bible only tells us what we need to know to communicate the message about who God is. And so we, we have some missing information here that doesn't help us out much, does it? But you see, Cain is afraid that when someone would meet him, Cain would kill him. Or that this individual would kill him. Why? And, and then listen to what God says afterwards. God covers Cain with a mark, right? 
Hang on. God covered Adam and Eve when they sinned, right? Yes. And now God's covering Cain, the murderer, when he sins, right? It seems like our God is a God who is in the habit of covering sinners. Amen? It seems like our God is a God who is in the habit of reaching out to people even when they have transgressed. I'll start preaching up in here. Okay. That's not actually what the sermon's about, so I need to, I need to get back on track here. But here's the thing. God tells Cain, don't worry, no one's going to touch you. He marks Cain and he says, if anyone touches you, I will return it upon them sevenfold. What does this even mean? And, and then we realize that the ancient world, their justice system, was really based on revenge killings. Do we know what revenge killings are? You know, it, this, this is one of the things that prevented murder in society, is that you had a family and a clan. And if someone killed you, then someone from your family or clan had a right to a revenge killing, right? Had a right to go take that person's life. But then that person also has a family and a clan, right? Yeah, so what's their family and clan going to do? Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. And here's the thing with revenge killings, with a world of revenge killings like the ancient world out of which the Bible comes, is that it just leads to an endless cycle of violence. And so when God says to Cain, I'm going to mark you and no one's going to touch you, God is putting an end to the cycle of violence, preventing them from continuing that cycle. Just like in Genesis 3, God's judgment is actually designed to stop the cycle of destruction. He covers the sinner. Fascinating, isn't it? Well, let's turn the page again. Now we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6. A new generation. Generations come and generations go. But the heart of humanity remains strangely consistent, doesn't it? Are things getting any better? No, my friends. There's a problem in Genesis 6, the story of Noah and the flood. And we all remember how the story begins, right? Humanity becomes very wicked, so wicked that God regrets having made them. That is some intense language. In fact, the Bible says that, that, uh, that God is looking, it, it paints this picture of God looking for relief from the wickedness of humanity. By the way, that's what the name Noah means, relief. Or rest. This is a story about searching for rest from the wickedness of humanity. But there's, there's a question here, though. If the flood was designed to wipe out all wickedness, then why is it that the very next story after the flood is Noah getting drunk and his son looking upon him? Whatever that means. There are some very scandalous old rabbinic interpretations that we will not get into at the moment. If, this, if the flood was designed to wipe out sin, it did a really bad job of it. There are some old rabbinic stories, though, that point to a particular verse here that, that argue that it wasn't just about human wickedness. Genesis 6 4. <coughs> This verse is, admittedly, admittedly, we have a hard time figuring out what to do with this verse in Christianity. But it talks about these, these individuals, the Nephilim. We remember those? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans, 
and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Sons of God, daughters of humans. What does that even mean? You see, here, here's the thing, though. This language for sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, this shows up periodically throughout the Bible, usually to reference angels. And so in Jewish tradition, they, they, they say, well, you know what? These, these were angels that chose to leave their heavenly abode, come down to humanity. And what did they create? They created a warrior race. And so now we don't just have Cain killing Abel. Now we have an entire race of people killing one another. Once again, this confusion, not godly, trying to be godlike, this, this breaking of the boundary between gods and humans. Because at the end of the day, generations come and generations go, but the heart of humanity remains the same, doesn't it? I want to be godlike. I want people lifting me up. I want people exalting me. I want to be the center of my world. I want to be my own God. That's the great temptation, isn't it? And so, God sends a judgment. The flood stops that cycle from continuing. But even in the flood, God provides a protection, doesn't he? The ark, right? God provides a covering, some way to protect humanity. I find it fascinating that in each of these stories, there's a temptation, but the temptation is somehow to confuse being godly with godlike. And in each of these stories, there's a judgment. But the judgment is always designed to stop humanity from continuing down this path of destruction. And in each of these stories, God always reaches out to a sinner at the end and provides protection, a covering. And so we turn the page again. We find ourselves with a new generation in Genesis chapter 11. Generations come and generations go. But the heart of humanity remains rather consistent, doesn't it? Genesis 10 talks about the spread of humanity, their arrangement in the clans, families. And then we get Genesis 11, this fascinating story about the Tower of Babel. We all remember this story, right? Humanity is growing in number, and so they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we will make a name for who? For ourselves. So that we will not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Hang on. Why was this such a problem? Once again, whose name are we trying to lift up in this story? Humanity trying to lift up our own name. Humanity trying to be godlike, not godly. The, the, the Hebrew, the way the Hebrew structures this, it, it's not so much them just like building a cool tower, so they're like, hey, look at the cool tower. It's people trying to build their way up to the heavens. Trying to build their way up to where God would be in their cosmology. And, and I love the way the story, the story uh, describes what takes place because we have the humanity trying to build up their own name, humanity trying to build up this huge tower. And then you see what God has to do? God has to come down to see the biggest thing humanity can build. It, the, the text almost makes it sound like God is like, oh, what's going on down there? Let, let, let me see. Hang on. Great Hebrew humor. It's fantastic. <laughs> And so once again, there's a judgment, right? Once again, uh, God confuses the language, and then the judgment is designed to stop them from continuing on this path of trying to make themselves God. So here's my question. In each of these stories, 
The temptation is to be God-like, not godly. In each of these stories, the judgment is designed to stop us from continuing down that path of destruction. And in each of these stories, we have a God who reaches out to the sinners at the end to protect them. So where's the protection in Genesis 11? That's the question. Genesis 3, God covers Adam and Eve. Genesis 4, God covers Cain. Genesis 6, God covers Noah. Where is the covering here? If you look at the end of Genesis 11, it concludes with a genealogy. You know, those lists of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so that we so unceremoniously skip over when reading our Bibles, right? <laughs> and the genealogy leads to Abram. And listen to what God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And get this, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, my friends, with the Tower of Babel story, it's not just one generation at this point that has a problem. It's not just one generation that wants to make itself look like God. It's not just one generation that wants others to lift it up. It's the whole world, and it's the whole world for every generation. And that's the question. What happens when we look around and it seems like the whole world is going crazy? What happens when we look around and it seems like the whole world is out of order? When it seems like the whole world is filled with people who want to be treated like little gods unto themselves. What happens, my friends, when every time we turn on the news, we see the whole world out of whack, as if the world is sailing on a course to destruction and there's no sign of us turning back? What happens when all of our tragedies now come in mass? Mass shootings, mass terrorism, mass incarceration, mass debt. What happens when all the tragedies just seem to be amplified? Every time we turn on the news, we can't escape them. Where is God's covering for this? Where is God's answer for this? Where is God reaching out to humanity once again to save us from ourselves? To save us from our delusion that somehow we should be God? What does God do then? Every story in Genesis 3-11 through 11 ends with God reaching out to humanity with protection, to protect us from ourselves. And my friends, the Tower of Babel story is no different. Because Genesis chapter 11 ends by introducing a character named Abram. And when God speaks to Abram, God says, Abram, through you, I am reaching out to all the families of the earth. Through you, I am reaching out to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And you see, my friends, there are a few things we have to understand about what God is saying to Abram here. Because it's not just about saving one generation. It's not just about one people group. It's not just about one family. Yeah. It's about the whole world. Yeah. It's about all peoples. From the very beginning of this biblical story, we have to understand that our God is here to reach out to all peoples, to provide a covering for all peoples. Yeah. You see, my friends, there are three simple things that I want us to see from what God speaks to Abram here this morning. Three things.
things that we may want to take with us out as we go into this world. First, God has a plan. Turn and tell someone God has a plan. God has a plan. You see, my friends, when we are continually confronted with the stories of chaos, whether it's on the news or in the newspapers, whether we're reading our friends' news feeds on social media, when we are continually confronted with the brokenness of our world, we have to remember that our God has a plan. Turn and tell someone, God has a plan. God has a plan. We need to declare it, and we need to remember it. Because, my friends, sometimes when all we see are problems, we can be tempted to believe that's all that's in the world. When we feel overwhelmed with the tragedies that take place in this world, yes. and it doesn't matter if it's something happening on the other side of the world, yes. starvation in Yemen, yes. it doesn't matter if it's something that's happening in our own land, yes. the incarceration of refugees, it does yes. not matter if it is a problem in our own hearts. Yeah. The pain and the heartbreak that we often feel in our own homes. Yeah. We have to remember that we have a God that is still at work in this world. And that our God has a plan. Turn and tell someone God has a plan. Yeah. You see my friends, there is an old rabbinic teaching. That even though when we look at the world, we do not see a lot of evidence that causes us to be optimistic. Uh -huh. But when we know that our God is still at work in the world, we have reason to remain hopeful. We may not have evidence in this world to be optimistic, but we can always remain hopeful because we know our God has a plan. Turn and tell someone, God has a plan. God has a plan. Point number two. God is still in the blessing business. Turn and tell someone, God's here to bless. And we need to remember that our God is still in the blessing business. Because you see, my friends, the truth is that sometimes things look very troubling in this world. Sometimes things look very problematic. And we have to remember that our God is still working for good in this world. Turn and tell someone, God's here to bless. And you see, my friends, that is, uh, that is remarkably beneficial. In fact, uh, we, we really should come here and praise the Lord this morning that God is here to bless because the truth is that sometimes when I look at the world, sometimes when I look at myself, I don't always see something that's worth blessing. When I look at what's in my own heart, when I confuse being godly and godlike, I don't always feel like I'm worthy of being blessed. But then again, when I read the story, I might not have thought that Adam and Eve are worthy of covering. I may not have thought that Cain was worthy of protecting. I may not have thought that humanity was worthy of protecting through the flood. Praise God that our God is God and we are not. Amen. Our God is still in the business of blessing people in this world, whether or not we look like we deserve it. Whether or not we look like we're worthy of it. Because you see, my friends, our God who blesses, blesses because that's who He is. Not because of who we are. If God's goodness was dependent on who we are, we would be in a world of hurt. But my friends, our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Our God is the God who got into the blessing business a long time ago. He has gotten very good at the blessing business, and He is still in the blessing business today. Turn and tell someone, our God is here to bless. Point three. God's plans, God's blessings still come by way of a call. Notice that there is a calling here. I don't know why. I don't know why God chooses to 
work through human hands. At times, I question that. We humans are remarkably inconsistent beings. The one thing we are consistent at is confusing being godly and godlike. But God's plan to bring a blessing to all the families of the earth. God's plan to cover all the families of the earth, to save all of us from ourselves. Begins and is worked through this call of Abram. Abram, come. Answer this call. You will be immensely blessed, but it's not just about you. It's about being a blessing to all the families of the earth. And the interesting thing about this call, my friends, we, we could almost call it a covenant when we read it in light of Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. The interesting thing about God's calling to Abram to, to be sort of a, a, a conduit, the beginning of a story of God at work in this world to bless all peoples. The interesting thing about this is that the call does not end with Abram. Abram serves his purpose, answers that call, but then there's a next generation, there's Isaac. And Isaac also steps up to the call, right? God makes a covenant there, and then there's Jacob. And then after Jacob, there are his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Generation after generation, this calling is inherited. God continually working to bring blessing in this world. Now here's the thing, here's the kicker. We in Christianity view ourselves as the spiritual heirs of Abraham. We in Christianity view ourselves as the spiritual heirs of this kind of call. The call didn't end with Abram. It continues from generation to generation. Because generations come and generations go, and yet there's one thing that remains consistent. And that's our hearts. The fact that we need to be saved from ourselves. Amen. So here's the question. Is anyone ready to answer that call this morning? Does anyone really believe that God still has a plan in this world? That God is still in the blessing business? And that God is still going to work through human hands? That God still calls us to this task? To be a blessing to everyone around us? Does anyone hear that call? Because sometimes when I look at the mess of the world, when I turn on the news, when I read the newspaper, I don't feel a whole lot like answering that call. Because when all I look at are the problems, then what do I see? I just see a world of problems. But I need to believe that my God is still at work in this world. I may not be optimistic, but I can still be hopeful. Because we have a good God. Our God has a plan. Our God is still in the blessing business. And our God is still calling people unto his kingdom service. But in order to answer that call, I have to be willing to lay down my judgments of Adam and Eve. I have to be willing to lay down my judgments of Cain. I have to be willing to lay down my judgments of the wickedness of humanity. I have to recognize that I'm still one of those people who confuses being godly with godlike. And I've got to stop believing that the problems are all there is at work here. And I've got to start looking towards my God. And what he's doing in this world. Amen? Amen. Does anyone hear this call this morning? Does anyone hear this call this morning? To be an agent of change in this world. 
to be a conduit through which God's blessings can flow into this world. Do you hear the call this morning? One fellowship. The doors of the church are open. Hello, my name is Constance. Praise Team Seeger here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.